I swear, these episodes seem to get through less and less scripture. Like, I don't know what's going on because when I first started these scripture studies a while back, I would go through entire chapters and now I can only get through like three verses, but it's not because I'm being lazy or because I don't want to get through stuff. It's just that there's so much dope stuff that I want to talk about in these studies and I I just don't have enough time in an episode to go through an entire chapter it's just i don't know i hope y'all are okay with it i hope you don't mind that romans 8 is gonna have one more episode this is the longest it's taken me to get through a chapter in the bible it's ridiculous oh and before i start a little public service announcement uh my AC is working again. If y'all heard last week's episode, I had to share y'all the bad news that my AC broke in the middle of summer and I was cooking like a hot chicken. But now, oh, now this mug work and it feel great. But I'm not going to worry about that for too much longer. I want to hop straight into the scripture and we're getting through four verses today. Four verses. We're reading through Romans chapter eight. If you haven't been following along, and today we are going through verses 24 through 28, and I'm going to read through those four verses, and then we're going to break it down, and I hope y'all enjoy it. And before I do that, real quick, before I do that, if you haven't already, share this podcast, this episode, whatever you want to do, share it with your friends. Share it with your friends and family. I think it's so cool because I can see the analytics on the podcast, and I see that over time, it continues to grow, and it continues to populate into completely different countries and cities, and it's just so awesome. So I encourage you, share this with your friends and your family, and hopefully they can learn something as well. But on to Romans chapter 8, verses 24 through 28, Paul says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we did not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who he called according to his purpose. Okay, that was good. So let's start breaking this down. Verse 24, once again, Paul says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? So the first question we got to ask since we're kind of breaking up chapter eight here, is what hope is Paul talking about? And if we remember back to last week's episode, it talks about this hope in verses 20 and 21. And Paul says in verse 21 that in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So this hope that Paul is talking about is this hope that all of creation that has been groaning and has been subject to futility, the hope for all creation is that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of God. And Paul then goes on to say, he says, now hope that is seen is not hope. And it makes sense because if you see something and you know it to be true, or you know that it is obtained, then there's nothing to hope for. It's already given. And I think this is important, and I know this isn't necessarily what Paul is talking about, 
But this idea, when when believers will fall short from time to time, and, and will sin, and and will will just be so burdened with shame and guilt, and, and will sit there and go, "Oh Lord, I hope you can forgive me. I hope you can forgive me." It may just be a phrase that you say, but if we take Paul's logic, and we know that we are already forgiven in Christ, what's the point of hoping? that you will be forgiven if we already know that forgiveness is given to us. And Paul, like he says, he says, for who hopes for what he sees? We don't have to hope for salvation. We don't have to hope for forgiveness or grace. That's already given. We already see it, but there's still this thing that creation's hoping for, and that's that it'll be set free from this bondage to corruption and obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And Paul continues on in verse 25. He says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay. So, so once again, this hope that Paul's talking about is creation awaiting the day of the Lord or the new heavens and the new earth or the time of the rapture or the end times, whatever you want to call it. It's this, this culmination of of God's redemption plan from the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning when Adam sinned, this creation plan got kickstarted. And it's going to culminate in in this freedom from this bondage of corruption. And many people will call that the end times or the day of the Lord or the new heavens and new earth or the around the time of the rapture. And thinking about this, it got me thinking about all these different eschatologies. And a, a boiled down understanding or definition of eschatology is basically it's it's a, a study of the end times, a study of when uh, Christ comes back and the end of history, if you will. And if you've never studied eschatology before, um, consider yourself lucky. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, I'm getting, I'm getting. But eschatology can get so crazy. There's so many different views that believers can pull from scripture trying to understand what the end times will really look like. When you're talking about the the tribulation, maybe you've heard of the tribulation where there'll be a lot of persecution and it'll just be a really rough time. You've got people who believe in pre-trib and post-trib. The idea that um, all the believers will be taken up before the tribulation and be spared from it, or that we will go through the tribulation and after the tribulation will be taken up. You have people who believe in amillennialism or postmillennialism or pre-millennialism, and they get this from referencing Revelations 20 verse 3. And then you have other people in regards of end times who will take a preterist view and the preterist view is regarding prophecies, the prophecies in the Bible, um, particularly the ones that Jesus gave. And they believe that these prophecies have already been fulfilled. And a culmination of those prophecies happened at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Or you have futurists who hold an already but not yet view where some of these prophecies have already been fulfilled, but then there's some that are not yet. And if you have kind of gotten the hint, you see that this study of end times and eschatology is confusing. And there's so many different things and so many different ways to try and interpret these passages. And I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I have taken zero time to study these. 
to even have an opinion on what may or may not be true or what may or may not hold more weight than the other. But in all seriousness, many people take eschatology and end times very seriously because it's, it's the end of history. Who doesn't want to know how the end of history is going to look? Who doesn't want to know when or how or what the return of Christ is going to look like? We all have this desire to want to have some sort of idea of what that looks like. And you can see people's attempt to try and visualize this when you see popular movies like the movies Left Behind. If y'all haven't seen the movie Left Behind, let me just tell you, it will scare you into Christianity. <laughs> it will scare you into asking for forgiveness. Or you even see um, certain pastors and churches who will claim that they know the day when Christ returns, that, that they know when the apocalypse is going to happen and they'll give these dates and it it's something that human beings are fascinated with and it's obvious that many people are going to be curious about this but i i bring all this up because i want to say that if we're not careful when it comes to our excitement towards trying to figure out the end times we can allow our impatience and our excitement to influence our witness to the world. We can start looking for the rapture or the end times. Or we can start looking for the antichrist in this president or that president or that leader. And everywhere we look, we can try and we, we can spend our time trying to decipher vague prophecies that Jesus gave. And you might be wondering, vague prophecies? Can I tell you something? This this may be a shock, but I'm going to prove it to you. So so don't don't hop off the boat yet. Jesus was not concerned about the end times. And neither should we. I'm going to say that again. Jesus was not concerned with the end times. That wasn't his main focus in his ministry. Now I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. But when it comes to the teaching of Jesus, when it comes to the things that he thought were so important that he had to say it and repeat it and teach it and preach it, his sole teaching was for us to live holy while we walk this earth, for us to live a life that conforms to the example of Christ while we're alive. You can see this to be true. When you see how Jesus answers and teaches about his second coming in the end times, they're always vague or unclear at best. Now, let me say, it's not because Jesus was stupid. It's not because Jesus didn't know how to explain it or, or anything like that. But Jesus was vague for a very specific reason. And I want to read to you um, a passage in Mark chapter 13, verses 6 through 23. I know it's kind of long, but this will give you an idea of how vague Jesus was when it concerns the end time. So you have uh, Jesus being questioned about, hey, what are some of the signs of your second coming? What are some of the signs when these things will happen? And Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and the children will rise against his parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Okay, you might be looking at this going, what do you mean? This was vague and unclear. Like Jesus is giving us all these signs that we can look for to identify the end times. But to that, I'll say, okay, so, so let's break this down. Here are some of the signs that Jesus gives. And let's try and figure out if we can point to specific times in history where this could lead us to th- say, hey, this is 100% the end times. This is the eschatology we're looking for. Jesus says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. That happens all the time. Jesus says, for nation will rise against nation. Every single day that happens. There'll be earthquakes in various places. Earthquakes happen all the time. There will be famines. Nothing new. These are but the beginning of birth pains. He said, they'll deliver you over to councils, you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness about them. The followers of Jesus Christ, even to this day, continue to be persecuted for believing in Christ. These things are are nothing new. Jesus is giving us things that, yes, are the signs. He's not lying. He's not trying to be deceitful. Jesus is telling the truth, but... These are things that have happened throughout all of human history and continue to happen now. It's very, very vague. And then we have to ask ourselves when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought to be, you know, watch out. What on earth is an abomination of desolation? (laughs) Like if this was, if Jesus was solely concerned with the abomination of desolation and wanted to make sure that we truly understood it, he would have made it very clear what it was. So throughout this vague example, what does Jesus really tell us? Well, he's telling us that we should always be ready. I mean, look at the examples that Jesus gave. These are things that are constantly happening. So we should always be ready. 
I think it's a good thing that Jesus made this vague. Because imagine if Jesus said, yeah, um, in the year 2045, on June 18th, is going to be the second coming. Imagine how many people will continue just to live their own sinful life, and then when they know the time is coming, that's when they'll, boom, switch gears and start living for Christ. Jesus wants us to always be ready because that means that we are constantly seeking after him and living in his example. And he gives this same type of message in Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. He says, But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay, so, so the point of what Jesus is saying in all of this is that, yes, the end times are important, and he gives us generic signs, but the main thing that Jesus wants from us is to be ready. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to live in conformity to his example and walk in the spirit, and he's very clear about this. See, if you look at the very clear teachings of Jesus, it always concerned things like love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor, love your enemy, give to the poor, help the orphans and widows, be a servant. These are the things that Jesus wants us to focus on, and these are the things that we have to continually live out if we are always going to be ready for Christ to return at any possible minute or hour. He doesn't want us looking out for specific signs so we can say, okay, he's coming here in 10 years. I have time to get my stuff together. Jesus says, no, no, no. That, that's not living out of true love for me. That would be like, that'd be like you're in a marriage and you treat your spouse poorly until their family comes over for dinner. And you know, okay, up until 6 p.m. tonight, I can treat my spouse however I want. And then, hey, I got to be, I got to be on point. I got to cross my T's and dot my I's when their parents come because I want to put on a good face. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to live like that. I want every second of your life to be living in accordance to the spirit. Just like Paul has talked about countless times to the Roman people. And often we make the mistake of searching for the answers to the eschatological questions about end times instead of just simply living out the answers that we already have. We ask, how can we be better people? How can we be more like Christ? How can we be more loving? And Jesus laid it out time and time again so clearly throughout his life in his ministry. Yet we, we don't even do the very things that are clear because we're so focused on finding answers that Jesus clearly did not want to give answers for. And I say all of this to tie back to what Paul is saying. Because he says that we have this hope for Christ's return. When creation will no longer be bound, it will be free. It will be free from bondage and corruption. And Paul's advice 
towards our hope for that moment is not that we spend our entire lives trying to figure out and understand something that is far beyond our comprehension. Rather, Paul says, wait for it with patience. Wait for it with patience. So when it comes to end times, when it comes for this hope that we have for a, a reuniting with Jesus, we must wait with patience. And like Jesus said, we must always be ready for his return. And once again, what's the best way to be ready? It's by doing what Jesus taught and instructed, which is to love God, love your neighbor, give to the poor, be a servant. All of these things is what we should be doing in the time of patience while we are waiting for this hope that Paul talks about. All right, that was, dang, that was just a few verses. All right, on to verse 26. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Okay, so Paul tells us something great. He tells us that God doesn't leave us hanging while we wait. Isn't that great? Paul just got done saying, hey, you have this hope, I get it, but you need to wait for it with patience. But then he goes on to say, but when you're in your weakness, the Spirit will help you. And this echoes what Jesus says in John 14, in verse 26, when he's talking to the disciples, he says, hey, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is a helper. And in this instance, what does he help us with? He helps us when we don't know what to pray for. That should make us happy. Because maybe I'm the only one, but have y'all ever had these moments when you're praying and you just don't know what to pray? You're at a loss for words. You may be in a, in a moment in your life where there's so many things that need to be prayed for that you just don't even know where to start. You don't know how to even approach God. And this is where the Holy Spirit intercedes. And I've had moments like this because I've gotten into a bad habit. I'm going to be honest with y'all because this is uncensored Christian. I've gotten into a bad habit where my prayer life lately has been more like I'm reciting pre-recorded work than actually having a conversation with God. My prayers have just been recited from memory. It's been the same thing day in and day out. I pray for the same exact things. I pray for the same people. And I've realized that something's missing. Something's missing. I I heard someone say one time when it comes to prayer, they said, when it comes to your prayers, if everything you prayed for got answered, how different would the world look? That's interesting. That's a good one. See, when I reflect on that, I realize that I'm not praying for what I ought. Just like Paul says. And it's not because I'm a bad believer. It's not because I'm, I'm some evil sinner who doesn't have the spirit. It's just for the sheer fact that I am not God. I... I we do not have the capacity 
to know everything we ought to pray for, especially in moments of weakness. When all you can do is is just groan. And you got to put yourself in the shoes of the Roman believers here because I don't want to take this too out of context. Look at the Roman believers and look at the persecution and the ridicule that they faced for believing in Jesus. Imagine what hope they would have had that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. They're just hearing this good news. And they're probably just now getting some of the earlier gospel writings and is probably getting preached to them. And they're thinking, he could come back now. Like this would be perfect because we're living in a place where they don't want to hear about the gospel. They ain't having it. And, and, and we believe these things and we're trying to live our life this way. We're being persecuted. We're being kicked out of town. And you could imagine what hope they would have had that Jesus would come back in their lifetime because they faced actual persecution and suffering. And this message that Paul is giving of patience in the face of fear, that would have been hard. But then this reminder that follows it up, this reminder that Paul gives of help from the Spirit in their weakness would have at the very least been comforting. And when Paul says, that the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. If we're, if we're not careful, we can try and take this to meet a multitude of things. I, I've heard this verse in particular be used to say, yeah, this is talking about speaking in tongues or talking about speaking in different languages and, and all of these things. And, and that might be true. I'm not saying it's not, but I don't think that's the point of this Verse, I think, if we're not careful, we can miss the point. Because we have to notice, we have to appreciate the deep personal love that is found within the Trinity, that's found within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we we have to see that in moments of our weakness, when we don't even know what to pray for, when it seems like there's no point in praying, When it feels like trying to pick a topic of prayer out of all this baggage you're carrying is just too much, that's when the Holy Spirit intercedes. That's the the point of this verse, is that in your moments where it feels like all you can do is just groan, just just sigh, because you don't know what to pray for. You don't know what to do. That's when the Holy Spirit intercedes. And notice how he intercedes. I love this about this verse. He intercedes with groanings too deep for words. That's interesting. Because in my moments of weakness, when, when, when I feel weak, when I have this hope inside of me and, and I see that there's potential for what God could use me in, or when I, when I look at financial situations, or I look at living conditions, or I look at how my job's going, when I look at all these things in my life and I'm hoping for something better and I'm trying to be patient with it, but it just feels like I have no more strength to give. Sometimes all I want to do is just scream or cry or groan or just let out what I can let out. And the Holy Spirit is so personal 
that he understands our groaning and pain. And he echoes it. I think that's what's so cool. He doesn't try and change it. When he intercedes, he doesn't try and sugarcoat our groaning. But he speaks through it. Because you would imagine, right, if if you have this impersonal being, because some people like to claim that God is impersonal. And so if you had this impersonal Holy Spirit who's interceding for us because that's just his task, that's just what he does, and he sees us in our weakness and he's like, okay, I'm going to help him. And he goes, to, he goes to the Father and he says, yeah, them clowns just can't quit crying, but look, they need some peace. They need this. They need that. They don't know what to pray for, right? But this is what they need. That's not what he does. Since the Holy Spirit is personal, he echoes our sentiment to God. He doesn't sugarcoat it. And this should give us hope because this means that we don't have to be polished and perfect to approach God. We don't have to have everything together. We don't have to have the right words to say to approach God. Sometimes all we got to do is just come to God and say, I don't know, Lord. I I just don't know. And trust that what Paul is saying about the Holy Spirit is true. Trust that he will mirror our state as a helper and intercede and speak for us where we can't. I think that's so beautiful. Oh, I love the Bible. Okay. Verse 27. Could we, we, we run it over on time here. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So how does the father know what is needed? Well, Paul answers and he says, because he knows all hearts. God is omniscient. He knows all things. And I love that Paul gives them assurance that the spirit won't hijack their prayers. He won't lead them astray. He he won't he won't understand what's needed but then go to God saying that something else is needed. Because Paul says that he intercedes for us according to the will of God. According to what's good for us. That should give us hope. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All right. We love this verse, don't we? I'm sure some of y'all have heard this verse, quoted this verse, used this verse, heard other people use this verse. And before we get too far into it, I think it is necessary to understand what this good is. What is God working all things together for? Like, like what is this good? Is it good like for your personal life and your happiness? Or is the good per se, God's overall purpose for salvation. Because often this verse gets used to say that good things will come your way. I've heard it so many times where I'll hear hear a sermon and it sounds so great. And it's like, I know you're going through a struggle. I know that, that you're hurting in this moment. But God works all things together for good for those who love God. And it's supposed to mean, it's supposed to lift them up to say, I know you may be struggling financially, but God's going to bring about good financial situations. I know that you're struggling in this area or that area, but God's going to make everything work together for your good. But I think that's wrong. I'm not saying that God doesn't want good things for his children. 
We already know that to be true. We know that to be true. Jesus has said that we know that God wants good things for his children. But if we look at the context of this entire chapter, it's clear that the good can't mean our own personal happiness. You might say, well, how do you know that? Well, let's look back at verse 18 through 20. and We covered this on last week's episode. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. So if the good was supposed to be our happiness or things that work for our benefit, then we wouldn't be facing present suffering like Paul talks about. And he continues on in verse 19, says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. If good was happiness and and goodness for our own personal life, then creation wouldn't be subjected to this curse of futility. So we have to ask ourselves, in this context, what is the good? Well, I think the good is the very next verse in verse 21, where Paul says, in hope that the creation itself will be set free, set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the good that Paul is talking about. And and, and we know this again, because this uh, verse 21 is a parallel to verse 1, where Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is the good that God works all things together for. That is the good. The good isn't just our own personal gain and benefit when we're struggling. Because Paul points out that we're going to face suffering as believers. It's inexplicable. It's going to happen. But the good is the redemptive plan that God has for creation. This plan was kickstarted from the very beginning of Genesis. And the entire narrative of the Bible from there on out is God working in creation to get to Jesus, to get to salvation. That's the good. And we can have assurance that this good is for us. It's for believers. Because Paul says that this promise is given to those who love God. Unfortunately, this promise isn't for everybody. And and, and it's unfortunate because I hear a lot of times people will quote this scripture to non-believers and say, hey, God's going to work everything out for the good. But Paul tells us quite clearly, and, it, and you may not like it, and that's okay, but he tells us quite clearly that God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is an exclusive benefit that we get being children and heirs of God. And those who love God receive this good, this good that Paul talks about in verse 1, where we have no condemnation and we are set free from the law of sin and death.